Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast from Grace Anglican Church of Grove City, Pennsylvania. Our goal in every sermon is to proclaim the bold truth of the Word of God, especially the undiluted grace of Jesus Christ. If you want to learn more about our church, check out our website at graceanglicanonline.com. Sometimes I think I'm a millennial because I like angsty things. Uh, I mean, technically I'm part of Gen X, so I'm cynical and hardworking, but I, I sometimes think of myself as a millennial just because some of the angsty poetry that was written, particularly by very angsty Greeks, is appealing to me. And I remember one particular poem by a, a very troubled Greek author named Kavafi in which he uh, chronicles the uh, fall of Alexandria, that ancient uh, city, uh, in a poem called God Abandons Antony. And in uh, the poem, he uh, talks about how the fact that uh, Alexandria was sort of like the Atlantis of the ancient world, you know, uh, uh, with a, a refined sense of self. It was a locus of science and arts and libraries and hospitals and fortresses and gardens, etc. Well, you may know that the Romans absolutely destroyed it in uh, 48 BC. I mean, it turned it into a heap of ashes. And in this poem, Kavafi is using Alexandria as an example of profound tragedy. And he thinks that the healing occurs not when you look away from the tragedy, but when you stare right into it, that you uh, avoid avoidance and instead uh, find yourself captivated by the travesties of life. And this is what he says in the poem. At midnight, you will hear an invisible procession going by with exquisite music. And when you do, say goodbye to her, the Alexandria that is leaving you. Do not fool yourself and say that it was all a dream. No, instead go firmly to the window and listen with deep emotion to that exquisite music and that strange procession and say goodbye to her to the Alexandria that you have lost. Now, that poem is about a place that everybody thought was invincible, solid, eternal, and, of, uh, and made of the, the highest quality of goods. And yet, the thing that they trusted in was taken away. And we are about to head into a Lenten season in which we remember that the things that we often regard as most stable and stabilizing will also go away. And many of you have already experienced that in life in very tragic ways, the truth be told, have not left your bloodstream. Uh, So when it comes to the death of your father, for example, or when it comes to the fact that your first son no longer calls you, or when it comes to the fact that uh, your marriage that you thought was going to solidify your own happiness has not done so, or that whenever you left the house and went to college, your parents' marriage started falling apart, or the fact that the minister you trusted isn't worthy of trust, or that your fiance left you, or that your job is not uh, the uh, living embodiment of the kingdom of God and the eschaton that you had hoped it would be. Whatever it is, uh, you too know what it's like to have an Alexandria within that has let you down and turned to ashes. And um, the apostle Peter made a great discovery late in life. And it took him a long time to make this discovery because the apostle Peter was not 
like John, you know, the Apostle John was sort of a mystic, kind of a hippie. And he wasn't like Paul, who was hyper-driven and very, very focused. Instead, Peter was deeply unstable internally. You remember the Billy Joel song, Darling, I Don't Know Why I Go to Extremes? Well, that was Peter, right? He was either hot or he was cold, but he was very rarely anything in between. But late in life, he discovered the enduring and stabilizing power of the personality of Jesus of Nazareth. And it gave Peter the only sense of stability that he ever had. The only sense of stability that he ever had. He found something that doesn't turn to ash. And because he gained this solidity um, and this establishment through his connection with Jesus Christ, he wanted to share that insight. And so in his dying days, I mean, maybe weeks before he died, he wrote a letter. He wrote a letter to this uh, fledgling group of Christians, and he was trying to establish them in the same thing that creates endurance, stability, and uh, establishment, something that would not give way, something that would not burn up, something that would not become ashes on Ash Wednesday. And so he is trying to connect them to this person of Jesus of Nazareth. So let's work through the text from Second Peter, this final letter that the uh, Billy Joel apostle had written. This is uh, verse 13. I would love for you to follow along with me as we work through this important passage. Verse 13, I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that by, I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me, and I will make every effort so that after my departure you may be able at any time to recall these things. So at this point in his life, Peter is very, very aware of his physicality. That's why he mentions his body several times. And his body is starting to give way. And some of you have realized that, too. You know, you can't, uh, you, you can't uh, run like you used to. And you certainly can't pay, play basketball or whatever. Well, Peter can't haul nets anymore. Uh, and he knows what it's like to be in solitary confinement. He knows what it's like to be in prison. And, so, and he's a weakened man. And he believes that he's received a revelation from Jesus Christ, who has told him personally, you won't live much longer. And so because he's not going to live much longer, he wants to communicate something of enduring value to this uh, remnant group of Christians. You know, some people do get the gut sense that they're about to die, even if their health problems are not uh, overly ever evident. Uh, my mother had this about a year before she died. She told us, oh, well, this is my last Christmas with you. And, and we thought, oh, ha, ha, you're just being sort of melodramatic, Kimberly, <laughs> which did happen from time to time. Um, but she was right. She was right. I mean, she had a, a gut sense that things were unraveling. And so Peter has that gut sense that things are unraveling. But instead of um, despairing as he saw his own withering body, or instead of despairing because the other apostles had started to die, right? Paul beheaded under Nero, James killed, uh, martyred. Um, Peter would soon be crucified upside down, at least that's what we've gained from the tradition. Uh, he could have interpreted those facts in a very despairing way. He could have had a panic attack. He could have said our movement is toast. We thought we would be successful or certainly more successful than Jesus, but it seems like we're heading in his martyrific direction. Well, he didn't do that. Instead, he said, what a wonderful opportunity that I have so that I can convince you of certain truths that will keep you steady and secure. And so he spends his final week securing the next generation to hand off something credible. And in fact, the text says 
that it's because he's been given this uh, gift of time that he will, to quote it again, make every effort so that after my departure you may be able at any time to recall these things. And so he's saying, I want to give you a gift before I die so that you'll have something of me and really something of what I have to say that will stay with you. And what are these things? Uh, Peter, when he's gone, says, I want you to recall these things. Well, then he tells us. This is verse 16. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice from heaven for we were with him on the holy mountain. Now, what is he saying? He is saying that the foundation of all hope and the security that we all long for is uh, historicist rather than mythic. It's, his, it's historicist rather than mythic. Well, uh, he, what's a myth? Well, myths are very good. I mean, myths are incredibly helpful. Um, myths are often non-historical stories uh, that convey a moral truth, and we all need those. I mean. Uh, you know, you should always tell um, teenagers about the myth of Icarus, for example, right? Uh, you don't want to uh, um, uh, leave your boundness unnecessarily because you'll, you'll, your wings will melt in the heat of the sun. I mean, that's incredibly important to communicate the great and enduring power of myths. Myths often have a universal appeal. They often touch a universal nerve of ethics. So they're incredibly important. Uh, and yet, and yet, Peter is saying, as good as those things might be, I'm not talking about that. I'm not talking about anything that we conceived of to create um, some sort of uh, um, uh, mythic experience for you. And so he's saying that Christianity does not hinge, does not hinge upon timeless principles, absolute truth, philosophical axioms, or psychological consolations, not even family values. Instead, Christianity hinges upon acts of God in history, acts of God in history. Notice the Nicene Creed, for example. The Nicene Creed that we're about to profess together as a group uh, doesn't spend most of its time talking about um, theological abstractions. I mean, they're in there, and they're important, and they're true, but the bulk of the creed is talking about history, something that happened in time and space. The bulk of the creed is about Jesus and a Jesus who was born of a particular mother who had a particular name in a particular time and then suffered under a dubious Roman politician who was fired twice by Caesar and who rose again and was seen by people and then ascended into heaven, right? But all of these things are historical claims. There are metaphysical connotations to all of them, but they're historical claims. Uh, and that is uh, what Peter's trying to say. He is saying, look, I'm not claiming to be a believer in myths. I'm claiming to be a witness of facts. And those two things are different. Uh, you know, the disciples' claim wasn't so much faith but sight. Yes, they had faith, but principally they were witnesses, not just believers. They were witnesses. Eyewitnesses, the text says, of his majesty. Not only did they see with their eyes, they heard with their ears. They heard this affirming voice from the power of heaven saying something about the sun. Eyewitnesses. They had convictions based on what they saw, not felt, not experienced, not thought, not a liver shiver that they had in the middle of the night, something they saw. Paul makes the same claim of the historicist nature of Christianity in his uh, Easter tangent. 1 Corinthians 15, in which he reminds people what the gospel is and said that a key part of the gospel is the resurrection of Jesus that many people saw, 
uh, and that he appeared to me, Paul says. And if this isn't true, if Jesus didn't really rise, then all of us are still in our sins. Our faith is in vain. And essentially, we should just engage in early retirement and read the book of Ecclesiastes until we die, right? <laughs> vanity, vanity, all is vanity. But let's just close up shop. It's not worth having a religion. I mean, Paul says that everything hinges upon the historicity of the miraculous Christ. So some of you know the, the poet Mary Carr. Uh, she was the one-time girlfriend of David Foster Wallace, uh, a brilliant and slightly troubled individual. Well, both of them are. But, um, uh, but uh, she described her conversion from atheism to Christianity based on the miraculous claims of Christianity. And this is what she said in relationship to a conversation that she was having with her Roman Catholic priest. Early Christians, she wrote, my priest tells me, one converts by going to their death singing. A lion is gnawing on your body and you're singing. Or you're crucified and you're singing. It's undeniable that some experience altered normal consciousness. However much I balk at Christian miracles, I think my friends who manufacture secular miracles are loonier. Like Deb, who thinks that her wind chimes tinkling are messages from her dead husband. It's like, you don't believe in the resurrection, but you think Richard controls the wind for you. If Jesus isn't A, crazy, B, a con man, or C, his disciples weren't, I have to consider the fourth possibility, that some miracles have a foundation in fact. And once you allow even that sliver of a possibility, that crack of light, it's not long before the stone rolls away from the tomb. So... Uh, when Peter claims that he was an eyewitness of certain things, I think it's fascinating that he chooses a rather bizarre incident in the life of Jesus for which to be an eyewitness. He could have said, I was an eyewitness to grand miracles. I saw the feeding of the 5,000. I saw the death of the Son of God that merited the forgiveness of the world. I saw the grandest miracle of all, the resurrection of Jesus. I am one of those witnesses. He doesn't do any of that. Instead, he chooses a rather bizarre story from the life of Jesus that only a few other people saw, namely the transfiguration. Transfiguration means a change of appearance, uh, and Jesus experienced that on the mountain. Why is he talking about this? Why wouldn't he instead talk about something maybe more significant in terms of salvation, like the resurrection? Well, if I can put it this way, the transfiguration says more about Jesus than any other visual miracle. Even at the resurrection, Jesus did not shine like the sun. But at the transfiguration, he did. There's a wonderful painting of the resurrection of Jesus by Rembrandt. It's not really well known because, uh, because it's very bizarre. In the painting, the tomb is cracked open and there's this angel who is glowing incandescently with the glory of God. And you barely notice that, oh yeah, there's Jesus in the corner because he looks just like you, like with a beard. I don't know if you're a guy, yeah. Um, so he just looks like a normal person walking up out of the tomb. It's the angel that has the glory and it's the angel that looks resplendent. You may know that after Jesus' resurrection, his body had some unique properties. He could just appear in rooms and so forth, but he looked just like, uh, he just looked like a human. But at the transfiguration, that's when Jesus appears for just a, a few seconds in his resplendent glory. The transfiguration, in other words, left no question as to who this Jesus was and is. It was the grandest visual and audible revelation ever given in his life. Because he shone 
with, um, notice the New Testament is struggling with language because it can't fully express what happened. So they talk about bleach. Yeah, I know. It was so good. It was like you couldn't bleach clothes that white. And the other gospels talk about that too, but they use language like lightning. His clothes were like lightning, right? But he shone and he was speaking with people that had died, Moses and Elijah. And there was the voice from heaven that echoed the words that were said over him at his baptism. This is my beloved son. Uh, and so it's the grandest visual and audible revelation of who Jesus is. And um, Peter knew it, and Peter saw it, and now before Peter dies, he wants you to know that he saw these things. And he realizes that he, along with all the other eyewitnesses of this Jesus, are dying. There will very soon be no eyewitnesses left. And as these eyewitnesses are breathing their last, he wants you to know that you who believe are not believing something mythic or existential but something historical, something that we ourselves saw. He's trying to tell us, I didn't lie to you when I told you about this Christ. Something happened, and that something that happened has universal ramifications. But those ramifications hinge upon the history. The hunch became history. The myth became fact. Okay, then moving on to verse 19. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention, as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Okay, what's he saying? He's saying that we're not there yet. The darkness is still real, and we have a little bit of light for the time being. The glory does not shine upon us as it did upon Peter on the day of transfiguration. We only have a lamp. We have... We have a little light coming to us, a little wisdom from on high, so you can't expect the glory yet. The glory's coming, but the glory isn't yet. You've just got a little mason jar full. Okay. Then he continues. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture came from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So this last section of text is all about the prophetic word. Well, what does he mean by the prophetic word? Well, he's likely referring to the Old Testament because the New Testament was still in process of, uh, of being written. And Peter's writing it whether he knows it or not. Uh, but the Old Testament is what he's referring to. And the Old Testament itself understood itself to be incomplete yearning for some future fulfillment, and not just yearning for more books to be published, the canon to be added onto with a collection of stories, but would be fulfilled personally by the visitation of Yahweh, which Peter believes has occurred in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. And he also sees the transfiguration as a richly biblical moment that this witness of ancient scripture was fulfilled in Jesus of Nazareth on the Mount of Transfiguration. Why does he say that? Because notice who Jesus's uh, um, partners are on the mountain, Moses and Elijah, two enormously impressive individuals from the Old Testament, but also two people who are associated with two big blocks of Old Testament material, namely the law and the prophets. And Jesus is here speaking with these icons of Jewish written tradition. And so the transfiguration is a biblically rich event. And his whole point is, is simply this, that scripture, sacred scripture that we've inherited and heard on Shabbat time and time again, and 
received from these rabbis. And we have this, this sacred story in our bones that it all has divine authorship. And the divine author that wrote the book through these ancient uh, men, these very dedicated people, also spoke on the mountain. The same revelator in both places. The one who spoke on the mountain is the one who inspired people to write the book. This is the point, though, if I were to boil it down. He wants us to have a high perspective of Scripture, and he wants us to defer to Scripture, and he wants us to trust in Scripture, to have a hermeneutic of trust rather than a hermeneutic of skepticism. You know, postmodernism and deconstructionism have given us many good things. It's not all bad, but one of the negative like ramifications of it is that we're just cynical jerks much of the time who look at everything with squinted eyes and cynicism and trying to figure out, like, what's the real story? But we do that with everything. And sometimes that's just downright pathological. Sometimes it's better to be skeptical about our skepticism. Like, do we really have to deconstruct every single thing? Or can maybe once in a while we have a little bit of trust? By the way, if you ever engage in a romantic relationship like a deconstructionist, you'll never, well, you won't have one. Because you'll have so much paperwork for the other person to fill out. And they're always going to answer some questions incorrectly. You'll never, ever love nor trust them. Instead, we actually once in a while have to approach the text with a little bit of trust. And Peter is saying, I didn't make this stuff up. Yes, I have my problems, as you will read in the New Testament. But I didn't make it up. Something happened. Something happened. And so he wants us to have a high view of that revelation and the book that contains it. That's why we say here that the Bible doesn't merely contain the word of God or little bits of the word of God or interesting wisdom. We actually say after every time it's read... We say the word of the Lord, to which we respond, thanks be to God, that we acknowledge it as revelation. Because this was written by people who, to quote Peter, spoke for God and were carried by the Holy Spirit. This is counterintuitive wisdom. Um, we, we, um, we call it special revelation. What does that mean? That it doesn't come from human intuition. It's beyond a gut sense. Uh, so we can learn things about God through General revelation. General revelation means you look at the world, you look at your life, you deduce certain things, and you can attribute certain things to the divine. Lots of people can do that. You don't need to be a Christian to do that. Lots of people can. Um, if you read, for example, the works of Siddhartha or his followers, that is the Buddha, you will learn a great deal about life, the world, and how you're supposed to interact with it. Lots of helpful things. The one thing that you won't read about, though, is the Son of Man who came to be your bloodletting savior and to absolve you of all your sins. That you'll never find out unless you have special revelation. And so we have a high view of that special revelation and of its center, who is Jesus Christ. So when Peter speaks of the prophetic word that was heard and then later written, he wants us to know that he's not anchoring us within some op-ed piece from Slate or from HuffPo or from the New York Post. This is not an opinion piece or a mythic tale of moral principles and consolation. This is a spirit-enriched, spirit-inspired text that has a revelation of a real person who did real things, the divine son, whose glory has dawned upon us all. And so that's what he wants us to see in this passage. So in his dying scribbling, he wants us to remember that this stuff, all of this reality and this pageantry is based on something real. So how does this land for us right now? Well, Transfiguration Sunday, as I said, always precedes the season of Lent. That's very deliberate. 
because we need a little up before we crash down. Uh, Lent is approaching upon us, and it's a season that I, uh, I unrelentingly resent um, because it's such a downer. And I resent it more this year uh, because I don't think Lent last year ever came to an end. I think we've been in perpetual Lent. And, but that's also a good thing. And even though I resent it, my resentment is not worth anything because life is in fact Lenten. And whether we like it or not, there are always fires that are being started in Alexandria. That all of our prized possessions and positions are ashen. Um, and we will experience that or be reminded of it again this Ash Wednesday that we are, to quote the scorpions, dust in the wind. Um, but not everything is lost. And that's Peter's message to us, that there is one undeconstructible person, one established identity, one meridian shining sun that will never be put out. And Peter wants us to know him so that we ourselves will experience a little bit of establishment. There is one thing, friends, that won't let you down, and we don't have to be cynical about him because he eschews our cynicism. And all of this liturgy, all the things that we're doing today is an experiment in security. That is, we're trying to secure you in a truth, in a book, and in the person to whom the book points, who is grander than we are and more secure than our circumstances, contexts, and situations. Um, we want you to know something about this man so that you find your life deeply helped and affected. Um, this, is, this is our anchor, the anchor that holds within the veil. So you know John Newton, the famous slave trader who repented, became the author of Amazing Grace. Well, he went blind before he died. And as he was blind, he gave this word to a scribe who was sitting by. Uh, and, and here was what he said. He said, although my memory is fading, I remember two things quite clearly. I am a great sinner, and Christ is a great savior. He, he understood something that gave him solidity at the very end. And I'll conclude with this a word from Clara Ward. You may know Clara Ward, or who, you don't know her personally, but you know maybe who she was. She was a black gospel singer. And in 1951, she was driving with her sisters in a 1951 white Cadillac uh, through the segregated South. It was, it was late at night, and they started um, to notice that on this back road, there were a bunch of white young men walking toward them with clubs. And the white young men made them stop their car, and they were very angry that these uh, black people would be driving a fancy car in the South. And so they broke the windows and, and as they shattered the windows, they pulled the women out through the windows, and they were going to beat them. But, the, but um, one of the sisters had an idea. She said, what if we start acting crazy, like totally crazy, frothing at the mouth, rolling around the ground? They'll think we're nuts, and they'll leave us alone. And they did. The men started being scared. They thought the women were demonically possessed, and so they all ran away. Um, well, they escaped with their lives. And, uh, and out of that crazy moment, um, inspiration struck. And, uh, and Clara Ward wrote a song. And it was covered later by Aretha Franklin as well as Mahalia Jackson. And the, the song, the gospel song, was called How I Got Over. YouTube it as soon as we're done. How I Got Over. I think it was written for all of us. How I Got Over. So I'm going to read it to you. How did I make it over? You know, my soul looks back and wonders, how did I make it over? I've been falling and rising all these years. How did I make it over? I know how. Because I remember Jesus, the man who died for me, the man that blood and suffered 
and hung on Calvary, and I want to thank him for how he brought me, and I want to thank him for how he taught me, and I want to thank him because he never left me, and I want to thank him for old-time religion, and I'm going to thank him for giving me a vision. Isn't it good? Oh, my gosh. And I, I know I've got to thank God for being so good, so good to me. How did I make it over? Sometimes my soul look back, looks back and wonder, how did I make it over? Well, it's Jesus, the man who died for me. Thank you, God, for being so good, so very, very good to me. Now, I think about my own life, and I've shared some of that with you. You know, there's more to share. Some of my own life, and how did I make it over? Because I, I faced some things. I'm just like you. I faced some things early on that could have done me in. So how did I make it over? How, the hell, how is that possible? Well, it's Jesus, the man who died for me, always Jesus. And whether there are easy days or hard days coming, it is best to build your house, um, to build your life upon the rock, the one that never gives way, never trembles, and never burns up. We have the transfigured, glorified Christ with a Midas touch, and everything he touches turns to gold and to glory. And that goes for you, too. And with our Christ, even the crumbling and abandoned Alexandria can rise again and shine like the meridian sun. Amen. We at last, they took your life. They could not take your